Good morning. Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Kent, and thank you for setting your clocks ahead an hour. Or maybe like me, you cheated and relied on technology. <laughs> Once again, we gather as a diverse and inclusive spiritual community that seeks to inspire love, work for justice, and grow in community. No matter your gender, age, economic status, political affiliations, race or nationality, affectional or sexual orientation, spirituality or beliefs, you are welcome here. We had a fantastic racial justice workshop with a great turnout yesterday, led by our guest preacher this morning, Chris Kress. Chris is one of the leading voices in the country who is calling for and supporting white people in our work for racial justice. He writes and speaks widely on courage for racial justice, feminism for men, lessons from past movements, and creating a healthy culture and leadership in progressive activism. Can we give him a warm can't welcome? Once again, welcome. As Unitarian Universalists, we light a flame within a chalice as a symbol of sanctuary and safety to unite us in our worship as a sign of life's beauty and wonder and to remind us of our ongoing search for the light of truth within us and among us. I invite the Girl Scouts to come up this morning and light our chalice.
during seminary when one of my classmates, a woman of color, didn't agree with a decision I'd made about our UU student group. She called me a racist. I was so angry. What, me, a racist? Why, that's nonsense. I have black friends, and my boyfriend at the time was Latinx. I thought of myself as someone who treats everyone with respect and kindness, regardless of their skin color or nationality. But I took her charge seriously, and one of my classes the next semester was an anti-racism study and dialogue circle. Then I began to understand. My eyes were open to my privilege and power as a white person and the oppression that people of color suffer every day because of the privilege and power I take for granted. I made a commitment to anti-racism work both as a minister and as a person. In the years since seminary, I've studied and learned. I've facilitated an anti-racism study and action circle, preached about racism, showed up when asked to by people of color, and participated in public witness events. I've learned a lot, but there's so much more to learn. One of the most important things I've learned along the way is that this is a lifetime's work, and it is critical to nurture our spiritual lives and renew ourselves so that we are able to continue this work. As we gather to reflect on the work we did yesterday led by Chris, and we renew our commitment to be a people working for justice, I have a couple of questions I want you to reflect on. How will you nurture yourself for the journey? What is your own commitment to racial justice? And how does beauty and wonder sustain your soul through this work? May this time together be a revival that renews us for our lifetime's work for justice and peace. Come, let us worship together. How shall we do the work of justice together? How are we to be in community together? A covenant is our promise to walk toward the lives we seek to lead, to be in community together. In that spirit, would you join me now in the words for the congregational covenant, which are in your order of service? We affirm that each life has brilliance, and when joined with others in joyful community, has the power to transform. We pledge ourselves and our resources to this journey. This covenant inspires and challenges us to dwell together in right relationship. We promise to extend hospitality, nurture community for all ages, encourage spiritual growth, honor diversity, and practice kindness. Now I invite you to be seated as Tanya, Elena, and Maya come up to give us a testimonial. So I'm sorry, it's just me this morning. Um, teenagers and daylight savings time don't go well together, but they'll be at next service. Um, I first came to this church about nine years ago in search of a church where I could raise my children. Um, my two daughters, Elena and Maya, were approaching an age where they were going to be taught the principles of our faith, and I didn't want to have to explain that I didn't really agree with many of them, um, particularly as regarded the role of women. So on that first Sunday, I immediately loved Hal's music um, and could tell there was a strong community here. I decided to enroll my kids in the preschool religious education program, and they loved it and their teachers. I continue coming to church here because it nourishes my spirit and because I think it is important to be part of a community that is on a faith journey together rather than doing this all independently. 
Um, in my work, I do a lot of things on a day-to-day -day basis, but it doesn't always nourish the spirit or focus on that. My daughters are now teenagers, and I love that this church values our youth and invites them and all of us to ask questions. This church has helped shape who they are, particularly in terms of contributing to their moral compass, teaching them not to be judgmental, and giving them opportunities for service to the wider world. I began making a pledge um, to this church long before I became a member. You don't have to be a member to, to make a pledge. Um, my family growing up had instilled in me that um, it was just your duty to support churches financially if you attend them. Um, so this year, I will again be making a pledge because it is all of our responsibility to contribute to make the church and the programming sustainable. I'm very excited that two of the key priorities this coming year are to nurture our religious education program and to revitalize social justice. And I look forward to seeing the new ways that we will work together on these priorities this year. <laughs> at this time, I'd like to invite the young or the young at heart to join me up here and have a seat on the floor if you want. You don't have to though. It's so nice to see all of your faces this morning. I really thought most of you would still be sleeping. Yeah. So I want to tell you a story this morning, and it goes all the way back to the time of Jesus. You see, in Jesus' society, there were things that were happening that were very unfair and very unjust. And at that time, there were a few people who were at the way top, and they had everything. And there were a whole lot of people at the very bottom. And they didn't have very much. Those were the people that were thirsty and hungry and poor and different. And they were just left out. The people at the top of the society, they considered those people at the bottom untouchable. What do you think that means? Raylan? That they're not good people. You can't touch them, because if you touch them, then you might become untouchable. That sounds, pretty, that sounds pretty sad, doesn't it? Yeah. So what do you think Jesus thought about that? What was that? Ike, was that a big thumbs down I saw you throw? Yeah. Yeah. He thought it was awful. He said, this is unjust. And Jesus used his voice to speak up and say, no, no, this is not right. We can't treat people like this. And then he went a step further. Then he went out and he hung out with these people who they, people called untouchable. And he talked to them. And you know what he did next? He touched them. He touched them. And what do you think happened when he touched them? Everybody was still good. Everything was fine. <laughs> right? He realized that they were just people. And when Jesus did that and showed that example, other people went, huh, well, I could try that. I could show love and compassion. And they became less afraid. And that's when the churches were formed, the early church. Now, I'm telling you this today for a very special reason, and that's because we're still doing this work in this church today. Can you tell me some of the ways you think we're doing this work of helping the poor and the thirsty? We raise money for the poor, Ike. Outside we collect food for the poor, yeah, 
Yeah, and the thirsty. And we believe as Unitarian Universalists that if you're hungry, you deserve food. If you need a home, you deserve shelter. If you're sick, you deserve a doctor. And absolutely, should you never be judged by anything other than what's in your heart and the person you are on the inside. Meredith? One time, like, when I was going to see a play at Playhouse Square, we were walking on the sidewalk, and then we saw this man, he was poor, and he didn't have a home, and I said to Mom, Mom, give him some money, and Mom gave him $20. Oh, Meredith just told a story about how she saw someone who needed help, and she asked her mom to help him, and she did. Thank you, Meredith. So I'm telling you this because yesterday a whole bunch of grown-ups got here at church, and we talked about these issues, this work that we're still doing as Unitarian Universalists, and we dreamed of a better world. We dreamed of what we wanted the world to look like if we could take out all of those things that hurt people, like racism and hunger and poverty. But we were missing a voice. And what do you think, whose voice do you think that was? Kids, right, Joe. <laughs> Goodness, you guys are smart. All right. So I thought maybe we could just take a quick moment, close our eyes, and adults, you could do this too, especially if you weren't here yesterday dreaming of the freedoms that we look forward to achieving someday. And think of what that looks like when the world is free and people are not judged by what color their skin is and who they love, and how much money they have, and what that feels like, and looks like. Can anybody tell me what they're seeing in their mind's eye? Go ahead, Iona. A bunch of rainbows. A bunch of rainbows, yes! Joe? I'm seeing, um that everybody is choosing where they want to live and the houses are only like five cents. The houses are only five cents to buy and everyone is choosing where they want to live. Joe, I love it. Meredith? Well, in my mind, I was imagining this super rich person giving like a lot of a super duper duper lot of money to a person that didn't even have one cent. You are seeing a rich person, a super duper rich person, give lots and lots of money to people who don't have money. I love that, Meredith. Go ahead. So, like, these people with different skin colors are hanging out together. In your mind's eye, you saw people of, with different skin colors hanging out together. Thank you, Kailani. Um... I imagine unicorns that are magical and everybody has one so that they, when they need food, they can just tell the unicorn to make some food. Were you in my dreams last night? <laughs> Everyone has a magical unicorn in, in Raylan's world. <laughs> I mean, mine too, right? And yours? I mean, this is, you know. So, friends, I just, I'm so glad that you shared those ideas with us today. And I just want to tell you that I'm proud of you because I see you working for justice already in our church. You've been doing it all year, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing it in your schools and you're doing it with the Girl Scouts and you're doing it with your friends. 
and you're helping to make this world a better place. And when you offer your hand to someone, you're shining your light and your love into this world. And I can't wait to see what you keep doing with that. These are the words of Timothy Haley. Amidst all the noise in our lives, we take this time to be together, to give thanks for another day, to give thanks for all those in our lives who have brought us warmth and love, to give thanks for the gift of life. We know we are on our pilgrimage here, but a brief moment in time. Let us open ourselves here, now to the process of becoming more whole, of living more fully, of giving and forgiving more freely, of understanding more completely the meaning of our lives here on this earth. May it be so. Amen.
our first reading is an excerpt from Chris Crass's book, Towards Collective Liberation. He writes, it is important that even as we have a keen eye for injustice and a passion to end it, we also open ourselves up to the beauty and joy of the world around us. Sometimes this is talked about as a way to sustain our work for justice, but I believe it is far more than that. It is important that we feel connected to our own humanity and the humanity of others through literature, poetry, dancing, art, performance, romance, sports, spirituality, food, entertainment, play, friendships, and so on. We need to nourish our minds, bodies, and hearts as a way to keep grounded in what we are fighting for, to enjoy life and to remain humble and compassionate through our connections with the world beyond activism. Sometimes revolutionary commitment can get translated into sacrifice and martyrdom. And while there is real sacrifice, we must also embrace the beauty and joy of liberation commitment. Theologian and civil rights leader Howard Thurman said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. While there will always be work that most of us would rather not do, but must be done. Our movement must primarily be a place that helps people come alive rather than a place defined by what must be done. Let us bring more beauty and joy into movement work that welcomes, inspires, and nourishes people. This begins by us doing this in our own lives and encouraging those we work with to do the same. The second reading is by Naomi Ortiz, titled, How to Journey to Self-Care. How to journey to self-care? We flutter from flower to flower with militant attention, dive-bombed by life unexpected, shadows we do not quite make out. Sneakily drink our energy, we respond with fierce fighting and soft surrendering. There are a lot of us. How to journey to self-care? Hold on to hope. Sing the truth into the sky. I share from the vantage of my life all I have to give. Illumination. The surroundings lit up brightly, briefly, clearly. Then I trust you know what you need, who you are. Your journey begins near me. I have traveled dry dirt roads, rivets cut deep, large stones tumbled across. The roads you take will be your own. What does your road look like? Let's begin. Good morning, my friends. It is beautiful to be here with you all. It's been a wonderful weekend here in Kent with you all. From the incredible music Friday evening to a workshop yesterday with beautiful members, lay leaders, clergy, staff, deeply committed to the faith of social justice in this congregation and in this community. Y'all have incredible people, incredible programs, and an incredible congregation. I work with UU congregations around the country to help support racial justice work, to help people come alive in the faith of our values and our commitment to develop resilience for racial justice. Because these are times that call for resilience, am I right? Yes. Y'all feel that? Oh, yes. 
the resilience to stay not just alive, but alert and engaged when the headlines three, four times a day come out of attacks on different communities, our communities, communities we're in solidarity with, communities we grew up in, grew, grew up alongside. Longtime organizer and Afrofuturist Adrienne Marie Brown, she says it's not that things are getting worse. It's that for many who hadn't been directly exposed to the injustices at the formation of this country and at the heart of white supremacy culture, economic inequality, it's that the veils are coming down. The veils of white supremacy, the veils of economic inequality, the veils of sexism and misogyny from the Black Lives Matter movement bringing black humanity into the forefront of society, a society deeply committed to anti-black racism. Not because those of us in this room chose to live and be, participate in a society committed to anti-black racism, but because anti-black racism has been at the foundation of the country's found, founding economically, politically, culturally. And so Black Lives Matter has created a tremendous disruption for justice and an affirmation of black humanity and black lives. Have you all felt that? Yes. The Me Too movement has shaped the foundations of normalizing, justifying, accepting violence, harassment, discrimination against women, and a disruption for justice has been shaping the conversations and the culture and pushing forward that this can no longer continue. Have you all felt that? And so we live in profound times of people's movements working for justice, even as we live in profound times of the veils of injustice coming down and the pain and the heartbreak. You all feel the heartbreak? And so our faith, our congregation, creating spiritual nourishment and resilience is vital as the veils continue to come down as Reverend Stephen shared, instead of saying, no, 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 I'm not a racist, to say, well, I am actually deeply committed to justice. I'm actually deeply committed to equality. And so therefore, I need to listen. And even though what was shared with Reverend Stephen from a colleague of color was difficult to hear, it helped his ministry grow in a way that now serves a far wider purpose of not just a justice that is narrow, but a justice that is expansive and growing. And so the more that we can move from a I am not racist or I am not sexist to a I am committed to justice and let the path unfold and let me invite in, as children said today, let us invite in the unicorns and the rainbows that can help guide us on our path. Because I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of magical unicorns in my life. I grew up in a family where you, never, you hear this thing, white people don't like to talk about race. It makes them feel really uncomfortable, especially white Unitarian Universalists or white people of progressive values. It makes them real nervous. Well, in my family, there was white people that talked about race all the time, but they were racist. But my mom was a magical unicorn, and she said, no, 
That's not right. When my uncles and my grandfather would go on tirades about how black women were the cause for nearly every economic problem in society, or how undocumented immigrants, Muslims, occasionally the Jews, would be talked about as the problems for the economic and political and cultural conditions we lived in. Not the corporations that were taking jobs and lowering wages, going to third world countries to exploit labor there. Not the wealthiest in this country creating more and more tax loopholes and finding ways for a company like Amazon to not be paying taxes. It was the poorest. It was people of color. And that's the way that anti-black racism and white supremacy operate, to systematically divide white working class, and at this point, white middle class, white poor people from people of color, to divide and conquer and maintain a power of inequality that deeply exploits the humanity of the majority of us. You all feel that? Exploits our planet, and tears at our souls. And so our faith is crucial. Our faith not just to see the injustices, but as we talked about yesterday, someone said, you know, I grew up in a family where we said racism exists, but there was a pessimism of anything being able to be done about it. There was a lack of guidance into how can we change our lives and open our hearts in a way that brings us into the path of justice. And how many of y'all want to be on the path of justice? How many of you all are on the path of justice and want to continue that work? How many of you all want the children who were here who spoke beautifully of five-cent houses to be able to be on the path of justice, to be able to make economic justice and housing as a human right a reality? We want the path of justice to be something that people are brought into, nourished in, and supported to be on throughout their lives as we build beloved community in the work and as a goal that we continue to move towards. Are we together in this? And so we have to remember that change is, in fact, possible. Just a week and a half ago, I was at Berea College in Kentucky, and it was a beautiful experience to be at the Carter Woodson Center for Interracial Education. And I learned we had just celebrated Black History Month in February. And then I learned about Carter Woodson, who in 1926 developed the first Black History Week with a vision of creating a vibrant culture of celebrating, studying, and learning black history that was completely neglected and at the margins and pushed aside, not just because it was saying this history is not important, but that anti-black racism was saying there is no history at all to study. There's no leadership here. There's no dignity here. There's no culture here. And so Black History Week became the formation for what is now Black History Month. And so it was beautiful to be in Berea, which was started as an abolitionist town and college in Kentucky, to then come to Kent, which then I found out that in 1969, black educators and the Black United Students Group at Kent State University in 1969 developed a vision of a Black History Month, which then was implemented in 1970, and they did it in a way that it started on January 2nd and went through the end of February. So the 50th anniversary of an event at Kent State University is on the horizon because out of that, within six years, Black History Month started becoming something honored and recognized 
in many parts of the country, and now it's part of our lives. How many of you all have learned something significant because of Black History Month? Come into contact and learned about leaders that inspire you. When I was 18, I was growing up in Los Angeles in California, and the Rodney King verdict came out. Rodney King, black motorist, speeding, late at night, brutally beaten by four white police officers. It was videotaped. I saw it on the news over and over and over again. And I was committed to anti-racism. I was against the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis, which is a good thing. (laughs) But I thought for sure something was going to happen. I mean, it was on video. Everyone sees it. And my heart broke and my mind was blown as the jury came forward with its verdict of acquittal, no charges. I felt the echoes of that acquittal of Rodney King when Trayvon Martin was put on trial for his own murder. As Freddie Gray and Sandra Bland and Tamir Rice, no charges. My heart was broken and my mind was blown. So we had a group of young people, mostly white, some Latino, Latinx, some Asian American, one brilliant, a little bit older, a year, at that point a year is significant, 18 to 19, it's like, yeah, he's older. (laughs) Black student who was in community college. He came over, we were all gathered the night of the verdict and we were just devastated. And I didn't know how to make sense of it. And my friend Terrence, he said, you know, I need to to talk with you all about what this verdict means to me as a young black man. And he started opening up and sharing stories about his experiences of racism, of being harassed. And it was a powerful spiritual moment where you could feel the sacredness of the space as a young black man is talking about his experiences to a mostly, to an entirely non-black group of friends and everyone listened. There was no, well, you must have done something wrong for the police to have done that. You must have done, well, how were you dressed or how did you walk? Or there was no questioning of the legitimacy of his experiences and his reality. He was a leader in our community who was deeply loved and respected. And so when he shared these stories of being humiliated, of being disrespected, of his humanity being denied, it was devastating. And in the backdrop was Los Angeles, 30 minutes from my house, the multiracial working class city of Los Angeles up in flames with tens of thousands of people saying no more to racism. And then protests, hundreds of them all over the country and then all over the world. The next day I knew I couldn't live my life in the same way. He had a poster of all these black leaders and I saw them. I said, you know, who are all these leaders? And he started explaining to me about Ida B. Wells and Septima Clark and Ella Baker, and I had no idea who they were. Two weeks later, I was like, okay, who are these people again? And he said, look, I'm not telling you about these people because they're my leaders and you feel guilty about the Rodney King verdict and you just want to know a couple things about black people so that you can feel okay about your life and move on. 
I don't want you to move on from this. I want you to be transformed by this. And furthermore, white supremacy hurts you. And I was like, what? He said, white supremacy hurts you by raising you to believe that there are no contributions, no leaders, no visions, no inspiration that comes to your life from black history, from the history of people of color, from the justice movements led by people of color. These aren't just my leaders I'm telling you about. W.E.B. Du Bois, Rosa Parks, those aren't just my leaders, they're your leaders too. And white supremacy, every time it makes you think they're not your leaders too, white supremacy is malnourishing your heart and your soul from some of the most important liberation leaders in this country, and you need to be nourished by the black liberation movement. You need to be nourished by multiracial movements for justice. And so out of that, Black History Month has been so crucial. And so just last February, this past February, my second grade son for Black History Month did a report about Malcolm X. And it was a beautiful thing to see my second grader and my three-year-old sit there on the computer listening to Malcolm X's words. And so our work in this is not to face injustice because it's just this something we have to do. Yes, we have to do it. But it's also about opening our hearts and our souls to the nourishment of liberation values and liberation culture and liberation leadership that can save our lives. We work for justice to save our lives and engage our souls. You all feel that? And so in this work for justice, I know that in your congregation, there's the Race for Justice Committee that is moving forward action for racial justice. That there's the interfaith network that combines your congregation with other congregations in and around Kent that is helping to move forward racial justice. I know there are people here who are hungry for discussion groups and opportunities to come together and talk about these issues. Are some of you all in this room who want discussion groups and opportunities to learn more about this? Are there people in this room who are here because they also want to learn how to be able to take action in the world for racial justice, to live our values out in our community and out in our society? Are some of you all here? Yes. And so there's tremendous work to be done. And in this work, I realized not just that white supremacy has taken away my opportunity to be nourished by leadership and movements of people of color, but that white supremacy whispers in my ears, shows me images all around that actively want my heart and my soul to turn away from the humanity of people of color and also the humanity of other white people. For us to become conscious or unconscious soldiers that advance a racist and anti-progressive agenda that's destroying the earth dehumanizing people and creating a death culture that takes the lives of people of color while poisoning the hearts and minds of white people and white children. How many of you all want to continue to live in this death culture? And so we have to create a life-affirming, soul-nourishing culture of liberation that nourishes us. So when we say to white supremacy, you cannot have me, how many of y'all here want to say to white supremacy, you cannot have me? So join me in the count of three. White supremacy, you cannot have me. One, two, three. White supremacy, you cannot have me. 
White supremacy cannot have the children that were down here sharing their visions of magical unicorns, rainbows, and five-cent houses. White supremacy cannot have my children. White supremacy cannot have friends of mine of color and their children. White supremacy cannot have our children, cannot have our communities, cannot have our lives. Does that sound true? Does that sound right? And so we have to engage and work in the congregation and in the community to live our values. Not to say I am not racist, but I am for justice and I open myself to the path that that brings me into. Because magical unicorns are on that path. Rainbows are on that path. But I understand the ways that the voices get in our heads that tell us that it's impossible. You ever had those voices? How many of you all have studied the good works of Harry Potter? <laughs> and I understand this to be a congregation that takes Harry Potter seriously. Yes. And so in Harry Potter, we learn about how in the wizarding world, a right-wing fascist army creates out of biological diversity, which is beautiful, different kinds of wizarding blood and, and families, but this right-wing fascist army creates divisions based on purity of blood. Biological differences that could be celebrated as beautiful ways that we are in the world become differences that divide us on a scale of inequality. Does that sound familiar? Biological differences that are used to divide and separate us and then structure us into unbelievably horrific inequality. So the wizarding world gets divided, but then we know about the good folks that are working against that in the order of the Phoenix and Dumbledore's army. Let's give love to them. And while I don't want to give too much away for those of you who haven't studied Harry Potter yet, we know that Voldemort and the fascist army are out there, but they also get in here. And so the logic of supremacy systems, the logic of inequality starts to get into our heads and whisper us and dole us into believing that we're powerless. You ever feel that? Yes, all this injustice is real. Yes, it's horrible. Yes, we got to do something. But what and how? And I'm tired. We come together as a congregation to see each other and affirm each other and name the gifts and talents that we bring. And we say thank you to Reverend Christie, who's doing incredible work in this community for justice. We say thank you to leaders who are all around, Mary Ann. We say thank you to Jennifer. We say thank you to people who are bringing leadership in this community. And then we also study Harry Potter to find out about magical powers that can help free us. The Dementors get in, the Dementors, the voices that we can't do anything, get into us and bring us down. And so this is a revival because we need energy, is that right? We need energy and momentum for justice, is that right? So when we say that white supremacy cannot have our children, cannot have our communities, I want you to think about someone in your life who you wanna say white supremacy cannot have them. Bring their names into this room. Who can white supremacy not have today? Name our people because we love them. Name our people because we do not want white supremacy to have us or them. Name our people because we want them to be free. This is a room of people who want to be free, am I right? This is a room of people who are committed to ending inequality that devastates our communities and the communities that we love and live alongside, am I right? And so sometimes we have to use magical powers that might feel ridiculous, but sometimes you got to get ridiculous to get serious. Am I right? <laughs> so Harry Potter teaches us that the Dementors and the Voldemort get into our heads, but that we can also use spells to help free us. 
And so if you have a wand, I invite you to bring forward your wand. And I also invite all of you to rise in body and spirit as we are about to uh, cast a collective spell. Rise, my friends, rise. So Harry Potter teaches us about the spell of Expecto Patronum. Expecto Patronum is a way of connecting to our deepest, happiest memory, and in this case, connecting to our joy of liberation, connecting to a moment when we have felt beloved community unfolding as we have taken risks, as we have heard voices that at first were scary to listen to that said, you know what, you need to examine your racism, or I think you can step up more. As we have listened to magical unicorns, as we have followed the path that leads to rainbows of liberation, as we have opened our hearts and our minds to this work, I want you all to breathe, and connect to an experience where you felt alive for justice, where you felt connected to ancestors who have worked for justice, when you felt hopeful, when you felt this is possible, that you see love and justice alive in this congregation amongst people you see alongside you all the time, your minister, your staff, lay leaders, because we're going to cast a spell for Expecto Patronum. So connect to that sense of power, of purpose, of living our faith as Unitarian Universalists, because it is time to use everything we have for magical unicorns and rainbows to wizarding spells to say, you cannot have me, white supremacy. You cannot have me, Voldemort, that whispers despair into my ears because I am going to bring the names of liberation leaders from Black History Month into my heart, into my ears. I am going to bring the words of liberation into my heart, into my mind, so that I stay focused on what I want and don't let supremacy systems push me back. You all ready? Sometimes you got to get ridiculous to get serious. And so on the count of three, connect to your energy of liberation, of justice, and we're gonna bring it forward into this beautiful congregational space to amplify our collective power. So on the count of three, we're gonna say expecto patronum and bring your energy of whatever it is. And you might feel ridiculous doing that, but that's okay. Because we gotta get ridiculous sometimes to get free. So on the count of three, expecto patronum. One, two, Three, Expecto Patronum! Thank you all so much for the work we do, for the faith that we practice, for making mistakes and continuing to show up, for being in this work to get free. And to say patriarchy, white supremacy, economic inequality, you cannot have us. We open our hearts, we open our souls, we open our congregational collective lives to the work of justice, and we move forward on the path is deeply grateful to be on the path with you all. Thank you. I'm gonna lift my sister up, she is not healthy. I'm gonna lift my sister up, she is not healthy. I'm gonna lift my sister up, she is not heavy. If I don't lift her up, if I don't lift her up, if I don't lift her up, I will fall down.
These are the words of Rebecca Savage. We have gathered under the banner of a shared faith. We are born of a welcoming grace that extends and receives love. We are touched by the ways we have fallen short of who we strive to be. And we here are reborn, forged by a greater courage. Let us go from this place encouraged and refreshed for the journey ahead. Now blessed by this time together, let us go forth in joy and hope renewed in our vision for bringing about racial justice as we continue inspiring love, seeking justice, and growing community. May it be so. Blessed be. And amen.